Welcome to It's All Relative, a podcast where we investigate the why behind the what that is family annihilation. This episode is part two in the discussion of the Watts family murders. If you do not know the basics of this case, I would go back and listen to episode one. If you have already listened to it or are familiar with the case, please continue listening to this podcast. Okay, so fair warning here, guys. This is a show about true crime, and we do not pussyfoot around here. So the topics are rough, and sometimes so is my language. So if you have any triggers, now's the time to turn this off and go find something happy to listen to. If not, I'm your host, Kaylee, and here we go. If you listened to the previous episode, you will hopefully remember I mentioned that I would have to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly in this case, thus the previous music clip. Now before I dig very deep into this episode, I do want to remind y'all that uh, this case did not go to trial, which means that all of the investigation that would have been done, should have been done, at least by a decent legal team on both sides, we don't have any of that. Take it a bit with a grain of salt because I, in some cases, I really don't have enough information to make an informed decision. Um, so please keep that in mind while I am discussing the details of this case. Now getting to the bottom of who these people are is also going to be a little bit difficult because not only do we not have all of the information, we have very controlled narrative coming from the people involved and they want to make sure that the story is told in the way that that they want it told um and unfortunately i say unfortunately because it's difficult to get both sides of the story when this happens unfortunately shanann's family is definitely making sure that the narrative is all about how shanann is an angel and how chris is a monster and please hold off on crucifying me for even suggesting that shanann is not an angel and that chris is not a monster do not for a minute think that I don't think what he did wasn't monstrous. I, trust me, I have enough trouble sleeping the deeper I get into this case. But we are trying to get at both sides of the story. And people are rarely just one thing. In fact, as my dad used to say, even intelligent good people do stupid things in stressful situations. Now, granted, this particular so-called stressful situation, the result was, again, horrible, monstrous. I don't think it's possible to really under, especially in this case where we have so little information, it is paramount to look at both sides as much as we can if you want to find out why this happened. Since the last episode, I have picked up Lena Durhali's book, uh, My Daddy is a Hero, and Lena Jahali is a psychotherapist, well, she's a, a couples therapist, um, and she does use her knowledge of psychology to analyze what happened with Chris and gives her opinion based on um, her knowledge of what she thinks happened and why Chris did what he did. I also was able to listen to a little bit more of Dr. Phil's opinion on why Chris did what he did. Um, it is pretty easy to look up. I think he's got two episodes one of them apparently was never broadcast, but it is available on YouTube. I think you can also get it on a podcast. 
um, as a podcast. So if you're interested, look those up. I think it's important to bring up both of these people because they are they are psychologists, they are psychotherapists. They do deal in the realm of the mind. But I also think it's important to bring them up because especially with Dr. Phil, he is such a prominent media personality that anything he has to say is going to be in many ways taken as gospel. Both of these people are also perpetrating to one extent or the other this Beauty and the Beast narrative with with Chris as the Beast and Shanann as the Beauty. And this is from um, Durhali's book, My Daddy is a Hero. She says, quote, By looking at Chris through the lens of a good person who made a mistake, we diminished the lives of the people he killed and how severe his actions were. End quote. Now, to an extent I agree. However, I don't see it exactly as that because I think that that's doing a disservice. I think that by looking at Chris through this lens, we we diminish our own responsibility for our own actions because we want to make him the other. We want him to be a monster so that we don't have to see bits of ourselves in him because we don't want to see the monster in us. So I'm going to try to give you as much of a beginning as I can. I'm going to start with the backgrounds and we'll go from there. Um, this is from John Gatt's book, The Perfect Father. I quote, Christopher Lee Watts was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina on May 16, 1985, the second child of Ronnie and Cindy Watts. His sister, Jamie, was six and a half years older and helped raise him. Ronnie worked as a parts manager for a Ford dealership and Cindy was a secretary and notary. From an early age, Chris idolized his father who was quiet and reserved. Ronnie and Chris were so close, said Cindy. They did everything together. Chris loved sports, and his father would take him to basketball games in the winter and football and baseball games in the summer. They also shared a love of NASCAR and went more than 200 races together, including the Daytona 500. Ronnie also taught his son car mechanics, which Chris discovered a natural talent for. Unlike his gregarious older sister, Jamie, who took after her mother, Chris was shy and withdrawn like his dad. When he started school, he was an average student, but shown at sports, winning many trophies which his parents still proudly display in their living room. His father would always come to watch him compete in school sports, cheering him on from the sidelines. Chris was also close to his maternal grandmother, Gertrude Schottner McLeod. She would quiz him on state capitals while they waited outside Pine Forest Middle School to pick up Jamie. He knew all the capitals of the United States and was learning the capitals of Europe, said Cindy. It was just something they did to pass the time, end quote. Now, there's a little bit further down here I wanna read as well. And I quote, he didn't go out with friends, said his sister, Jamie. I was more of a social butterfly and he was quiet and interested in mechanics and cars. He was just a focused person. Unlike his older sister, Chris never rebelled as a teenager or caused any trouble. But as he grew up, Jamie often wondered if something was wrong with Chris. He was so obsessive and controlled. I really thought he was autistic, said Jamie, like he was on the spectrum. He had to get things in order from the way he would eat to the way he had to say his prayers at night. It was his mannerisms. It was hard to hold a conversation with him unless we're talking about cars, end quote. This is from John Gatt's book, and this is about Shanann, and I quote, Shanann Catherine Rutzik was named after Shanana, the popular 60s rock and roll doo-wop group who played, with, played Woodstock. She was born on January 10th, 1984, in Passaic, New Jersey, to Frank and Sandy Ruzik. Almost two years later, her brother Frankie arrived to complete the family. Shanann always stood out with her vibrant personality and intelligence, but she was a sickly child who constantly needed medical attention. 
When she was a baby, explained her father, we took her to all kinds of doctors because she always had migraines. Brain surgeons, to find out why she was having these problems. She took these real strong pills and used to get shots for it. When Shanann was still little, Frank moved the family to Clifton, New Jersey, where she attended number 11 elementary school in the Lakeview section. Growing up, she and her younger brother formed a strong bond. We were pretty close, said Frankie. She would tell me things she wouldn't tell our parents. Shanann was insecure and often bullied at school, so Frankie became her protector, getting into numerous fights on her behalf. They'd poke her on the school bus, said Frankie. I'm like, leave her the hell alone. Years later, Shanann would describe her miserable time at school. I had people who picked on me and said mean things. I wasn't the popular kid in the group. End quote. So everything we have about Chris as a as he was growing up is that he was he got really good grades in school. He was very smart, but he did his own thing. He was quiet, really nice guy. The info we have about Shanann is a little bit mixed. Some of it says she started out a bit shy, but eventually found her feet and then basically nothing could stop her. Um, she did a lot of sales jobs. She was pretty good at sales, although she tried several things that didn't work before she found Lavelle. She was married before. While Chris never even had a girlfriend in high school, Shanann was already engaged to someone five years older than her. She'd been dating this guy less than nine months. Chris didn't have his first serious girlfriend until he was in his early 20s. This is again from John Gatt's book. I quote, Soon after graduation, Shanann married Leonard King. Some of her friends worried that she was too young and needed to see more of life before settling down. She was adamant about starting her life and having a family, said Cruz. They got married so quickly, and she was young and very ambitious. End quote. And while Shanann is getting married, Chris is actually planning to go to NASCAR school so he can be a mechanic with the NASCAR race circuit. And he does complete that training, but unfortunately, the interview does not go so well for him, and he doesn't land the job. So he ends up working full-time for a Ford dealership as a mechanic there. What we have now is the beginnings of a foundation of who these people are, Chris Watts and Shanann Rusick. Chris spent his childhood doing his own thing. He was a loner. He had some social anxiety, it definitely seems, and his sister thought he might even be autistic. He spent most of his time at home working on cars. He didn't have a girlfriend. Um, we do hear from some of his old schoolmates that some of the girls at school did have a crush on him. It's just whether he knew about it or whether they had enough courage to ask him out. We do get information that Chris and his dad are best friends and that his mother is, um, okay, it's, it's a little bit contradictory, um, the information you get on Cindy, but it does seem that she is the kind of mother that would bend over backwards for her son. So if he wanted something, and she never knew for sure what he wanted, both she and Jamie do mention that they are both unclear about what he wants because he doesn't verbalize it and they can't read him. So when they do find out what he wants, which in his case is this NASCAR training, um, they, they basically go out of the way, their way to give it to him. Shanann, on the other hand, supposedly was bullied when she was a child. If it is true, she did a 180 somewhere because somewhere along the line, she took the bull by the horns and decided what she wanted in life and she was gonna go get it. And 
that started with her first husband, Leonard King. She was going to marry him and they were going to start a family. I'd like to say just a little bit here about these, this Beauty and the Beast dichotomy and how Chris is portrayed as the monster and Shanann is portrayed as the, as the angel. And this is really important because most diagnoses of Chris, most reasons for Chris doing what he did, boil down to him being somewhere on the cluster B slash other category. In other words, a psychopath or a narcissist or somewhere in between. I'd like to say that because at this point I need to bring up the concept of, of lying, um, the concept of deception and narcissism, which is brought up a lot in this case, but it does seem to be brought up a lot and as directed at Chris. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I don't think that the backing is there. I don't think the evidence is there. At least not to portray him as a full-blown narcissist, uh, a full-blown sociopath, which is what the lying is brought up about. We're going to start with a quote from Lena Holly, where she brings up um, sort of as further proof of Chris's um, narcissism about a story that he um, told when he was in school. This is when he is in um, in prison speaking with investigators who came to sort of talk to him further about the crime and maybe kind of find out more about what happened. Quote, another clue Chris gives in his confession with investigators is a story from grade school about the time he wrote an entirely made up essay about having spent the summer in China. He seems to brag about his ability to be convincing even when making up a totally fabricated story. End quote. The following is from an interview that investigators did with Chris while he was actually serving time in prison. I've always been had a really crazy imagination. So like when I was a kid, like I even convinced my teacher I was going to I went to Japan over the summer or to China or something. But she said, you know, like, you know, you should just write down like, you know, your story, like how you cope with this. Why did you convince your teacher you had gone to another country? It was just like what you did over the summer and I was like, oh, China. Start right. <laughs> she actually believed it. I, I was really convincing. So well, you're a smart dude. Yeah. It was it was amazing. Parent teacher conference said, so how was China? What? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Now this is like a 40-second quote in a four and a half hour interview, and it comes at a time not quite three hours into the interview in which he is actually discussing how he can help other people. And this comes up as a, as a question of how he can be convincing because he wants to convince other people to do the right thing in their life and not do the, the horrible things that he has done. Add to this a story about Shanann when she was in high school. And this information also comes from John Gatt's book. And I quote, Shanann started with improvisation and acting, but Frances, who was her teacher, soon realized that her real talent lay behind the scenes, organizing props and stage scenery. Over many hours they spent working together on various productions, Shanann and her drama teacher became very close. He connected with her on a mentor level, recalled Claire, Little John, whereas I was more of a friendly classmate. After school, Shanann was often in Frances's office, opening up about her horrible home life. She told him that her parents were going through a bitter divorce although they never divorced and are still together after 38 years of marriage. She told me she didn't get a lot of attention from her dad, but I know she wanted, recalled Frances. 
I think there was a lot of hurt and frustration in the divorce. I mean, it was pretty fresh, end quote. Now, remember, they were not going through a divorce. They've never even separated, and they've been married for 38 years. And I quote, in 2002, the Pinecrest Players won a state award for an original play called Maximum Capacity. Soon afterwards, Matt Francis left Pinecrest High School to get married. 18-year-old Shanann wrote him a heartfelt letter saying she would never forget him. You have been like a father figure to me, she told him, even more than my own father, end quote. I'm sorry, what? After several years of working with Shanann, she has convinced her teacher that her parents are divorced and he is acting as a father figure to her. And as far as we can tell, she's never disillusioned him of this fact. Chris wrote an essay about what I did last summer and he did get found out. And Chris is not worried about the fact that he got found out. He is just using this as an illustrative point in the discussion he's having with the detectives. And Chris told this story in grade school. Shanann told this story as a teenager in high school, kept her teacher believing it for several years, and still wrote him a goodbye letter at 18, keeping this lie alive. And guys, before you get your pitchforks out again, I am in no way suggesting that because Shanann told this lie and kept it alive in high school that she is somehow a sociopath either. I'm only trying to point out the similarities between the situations and suggest that just because Chris told a lie does not necessarily mean that he's somehow a sociopath when we have a very similar, if not even worse case of Shanann doing the same thing carrying it on for years and nobody's making any suggestions that there's anything wrong with her. And moving on, if you remember back to the last episode, I said something about there being a lot of Nick's, Nicky's, and Nicole's in this thing. Here's another one. It was Chris's cousin, Nicole, who suggested he send a friend request to her work colleague, Shanann. I ignored his friend request. Um, my friend sent us both a friend suggestion for each other and I deleted it. Didn't need anything about him. I didn't want him. And she really doesn't want him. In fact, their first date, she's not impressed. They plan to go to a theater. Now, Chris thinks this is a movie theater, just like any old movie theater. He's, you know, dressed to go to the movies. And apparently this theater is much more posh. It's not like Broadway theater, but they do serve meals to you. You dress up. So she meets him and is absolutely unimpressed by how he is dressed and pretty much snubs him throughout the evening. Now, Chris decides he does really like her, and he has to pursue her. And she does not make it easy, but she is having some health issues, and because he goes through all of the doctor's appointments and lets her sleep her head in his lap for, you know, hours on end because of her health issues, she does, she does eventually see that he's a good guy. But she doesn't really ever stop being critical of him. And this becomes really important when Shanann is introduced to Chris's parents. Now, a lot has been made of the contention between Chris's mom, Cindy, both his parents, but really Chris's mom, Cindy, and Shanann. One of the most interesting things I have heard is how Shanann appeared to be so put together. She had her first house at 25. She could afford nice things. She always looked amazing. She was beautiful and smart and and kind and the question comes up how could Cindy possibly not want this woman to be the wife of her son and while those things are on the surface at least very true 
I think Cindy saw a little bit more there and maybe she made more out of it than was really there, but she saw something under that veneer that to be honest, turned out to be kind of true. This is from an interview Cindy did after the plea deal with Denver Nine News. It was always a little, a little strange that she always said a lot of things about Chris in front of me that I didn't like. Like this isn't the kind of person I would date. Um, he doesn't know how to do this or he doesn't know how to do that. Um, he looks like a skater boy. Let's talk about these snipey comments. Cindy was suspicious of Shanann. Now, I don't know Cindy personally. She may put on a front on the few times she has appeared in public. All I have are readings about her and the interviews on television and some of the coverage of the trial. So going off of that, she seems to me to be the kind of person that would at least start with making the comment to find out the answer, not necessarily to be snipey. She was worried about Shanann's financial stability. She was just worried because Shanann at 25 had bought her own house. This is not a small house, people. If I buy my own house at 25, in fact, I did buy it. my first house. I think we bought that when I was 23. And uh, it was from the 19, I think it was built in 1919. It had the original wiring. You know, this is not the house that Shanann had. The house that Shanann had was, it was a showroom. It was a show house. And while it did, probably didn't cost her a million dollars, it was up there in the sort of really solid middle class to high middle class ranking of houses. Everything in it also screamed showroom. At 25, that does seem a bit something you want to wonder about. She wanted to make sure that Shanann was going to be for Chris and that she wasn't going to bring anything, that, that Shanann wasn't hiding something that could come back later to bite Chris in the butt. I was tired of paying someone else's mortgage because, you know, that's what you do when you rent. And I wanted to buy a house. And I wanted to buy a house that I could resell um, one day and make a profit off of. And so I worked and worked and worked and worked. I lost a lot of friends because um, a lot of my friends were still young. We were still young. And I was 25 years old when I built my first house. Um, my family doesn't come from money. Uh, we always worked hard for what we had. And I did. I bought my first house at 25 years old. Um, that is Shanann talking about uh, how she bought her first house. I want to point out that she does mention she didn't come from money, and that's true. Rutzix didn't come from money. Shanann didn't come from money. So I also think that there isn't the basis there for Cindy to look at her and go, yeah, well, you've got this background that is definitely upper middle class. So, okay, I get it. Maybe you did come by this money honestly maybe your parents helped you out I don't know now I don't know how she got the money to pay for building a house at 25 remember she was an amazing saleswoman but she very obviously did not have control of her spending habits because just after Celeste was born she and Chris actually had to file for bankruptcy they owed approximately $450,000 they filed chapter 7 Two years later, when Shanann died, they were actually 
in a huge debt again. They had had to take money out on Chris's um, retirement plan to pay their mortgage. And they were being sued by the association in their neighborhood because they hadn't been paying the association dues. And one bit of really important information is that Shanann controlled the money. Chris had nothing to do with the finances. So all of the spending is on her because Chris just did what he was told. Cindy asked these things, whether she asked them sniping to begin with or not, I kind of doubt, but it doesn't really matter because Shanann took them that way. And since Shanann was a sniper to begin with, she probably sniped right back. And that never went away throughout the entire relationship. And just in case you think this is Cindy being oversensitive or seeing things that aren't there, we have Shanann herself online doing these things. Remember, Shanann lived her life online. She wanted to project this perfect family and she showed everybody what she had. So this is the last Christmas that they spent together before the murders. Um, Chris has dressed up like Santa Claus and she is trying to gather the children together so that they can sit on Santa's lap. Santa's here, but the kids are freaking out. Hey, Santa, where's your phone? In the garage. I wanted it. Oh. <laughs> Santa, you gained some weight this year. Come on, Santa. So she opens the door to Chris, who is dressed fully as Santa, and she looks at him and she says, where's your phone? And he says, it's in the garage. And she says, well, I wanted it. I needed it for pictures. Now, Grant, remember, she's on her phone right now recording all of this. But she also wants his phone so she can have it to take pictures separate from the video recording. And then she throws some shade. If you notice that, she says, Santa, you gained some weight since last Christmas. Hold on, Santa. I got to find the kids because they're kind of scared. Sit down, Santa. Have a seat. I'll try to get the kids. Ho, ho, ho. Here's Santa. Yes. Where's the phone? On top of your car in the garage. I needed it for pictures. Hold on. I gotta get the phone. This is hard. As one parent. I gotta the phone so I can get pictures. Hold, please. My husband's a genius. Doesn't listen. Okay, again, some things to point out here. One, the kids are scared. So, they're scared of Santa, and yet she's still trying to, She and she does, she forces them to come in and see Santa and sit on his lap. And they're crying and screaming during this whole thing after that. But she says, this is hard, as one parent. Okay, now, on the one hand, I get it because Chris is Santa, so he's not actually acting as a parent. But the kids are freaking out. They're they're scared. So you, your options at this point are either to just not do it or to have him break the mold of being Santa and help you gather the kids. But she doesn't do that. She goes to the garage and she says, my husband's a genius. He doesn't listen. And she's rolling her eyes during this. And this is, again, she's throwing shade. She's made a snipey comment online so the entire world can see it. And there are a lot of these moments online 
to be completely fair, she does have a lot of moments where she applauds him and says how grateful she is to have somebody who puts up with her. So I don't want you to think that I'm ignoring those points. I do want to point out that these snipey comments, the, the things that have been sort of the root of pointing out how horrible of a mother-in-law Cindy was, they didn't come from nowhere. She wasn't making it up. They did occur, and Chenan was definitely doing these things. She was making these undermining, snipey comments. I believe she was making them to her mother-in-law. She would do it for the whole world to see. And that is where I will have to leave you for this episode. I am sorry, but everybody's going to have to wait until episode three to investigate this case further. We'll talk about all sorts of fun things like Munchausen's by proxy and Asperger's syndrome, and I might even get a little ragey. So please stay tuned. We'll see you on the next episode of It's All Relative. Let's say goodbye with letters to Cleo.